As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Football Show. Welcome. The Athletic Football Show. I'm Robert Mays. Fun show for you guys. Nate Taylor is going to be joining us a little bit later to talk about how the Chiefs got here and the path they followed to this Super Bowl. Before that, though, we're going to talk about how the Bucks got here with the Athletics Bucks writer, Greg Alma. Greg, how you doing, man? Doing well. It's Super Bowl week. It's fun to talk. It is Super Bowl week. I have. It's been funny. I've heard your name on several Zooms this week. That's kind of how we've been interacting is just sitting at the computer watching the same person, but in different places. That's how we've all been spending our time. Anytime I just get to see a face, it's exciting. <laughs> I can't imagine how awkward it is for them. Like they just go into this room, they sit down behind a backdrop and they just have all of these faceless voices asking them questions. Well, and even even in the terrible spectrum of Zoom interaction, okay, at least they've had being able to see our faces as we exactly. So Brady was like legit bummed that he had this sensory disadvantage where he's in, he's just looking, he's like, I can't see them. Can they see me? It was so weird. And also just, this is way into that baseball. No one cares, but typically in a zoom, you can see all the people in the zoom and who has their hands raised. But in this platform, you can't. So you have no idea where you are in line. You have no idea when your turn is coming. You're just kind of sitting there waiting. It's such a bummer because I've said this before. Super Bowl week is amazing. For two days every single week, you have all the assistant coaches at a table just sitting there. And you can go ask them whatever you want. If you want to do something about an offensive lineman and you want to ask how a specific play works, you can pull up your phone and be like, yeah, well, when you guys did this in week seven, what were you thinking? And these guys typically aren't available with that sort of just openness. And so it's really a fun time to learn and talk about the game. And that is the least important thing, but yeah. it still is a bummer when you consider everything else going on right now. But right. it's still a bummer that that is just not a part of this week because I look forward to it so much every year because of that. This is my seventh one. And to not have that, it's just sad. It's just, it makes it a little bit less of an experience. I told somebody it's like watching the circus on TV to where yes. you're like, you're like, oh, that, that elephant must really smell bad. But I don't know. <laughs> Something is lost in translation for sure. There's no yeah. doubt about that. So what I wanted to talk about with you and Nate 
is I you know, obviously we're going to talk so much about the game between now and Sunday, and that's really a lot of the discourse over the course of this week. But I'm always a fan of exploring how these teams got here. My buddy Greg Bishop, who writes for Sports Illustrated, every year that's the Sports Illustrated cover story for the Super Bowl. They do this big kind of look back at how the teams were built. And I always enjoy that. And I thought that you and Nate both had such great insight into that and kind of had all of the context for the lead up to how this team got to this game. So I have like a set of criteria I wanted to go through with you here. And this first one is going to be, I think, a pretty obvious answer, but I, I really do want to dig into it. So what would you say is the most important offseason move the 2020 Buccaneers made? Yeah, kind of the big domino here would be the signing of one Tom Brady from the Patriots. Uh, I don't know if you read much about that, but uh, yeah, that sets, <laughs> that sets everything else in motion. Uh, you get Brady, you get Gronkowski, you get Leonard Fournette, you get Antonio Brown, you get five time primetime football games, you get a playoff berth for the first time in 13 years. Everything else kind of comes from that. What do you think is, and obviously it's such a weird year, you're not in the locker room. But what would you think is the most understated impact that he's had? The kind of way that he's permeated the building and affected things in a way that by having these conversations with everybody, you've gotten a sense of, but might be hard to see from the outside. I think, honestly, what I don't think I expected is how well he interacts with everybody in the locker room. And this, Mm -hmm. honestly, was something we had heard about Jameis Winston. But I wrote a whole story in August with a guy named John Hurst, who's an undrafted rookie free agent receiver. Never played. He's on the Chargers practice squad now. But like Brady had a nickname for him. He's he's not even among the top 53, really. <laughs> but his name's John Hurst. So Brady, old guy, calls him crazy legs as a nod to Elroy Hirsch. Good Jesus. Brady's 85 years old. Right. And no, again, no 22 year old knows who the hell Elroy Hirsch is. But I, it was to me, it was like the indication of, wow, this guy really knows. It's not like you even know everybody's name. And, and for John Hirsch, it was like, wow, Tom Brady knows me enough to have a nickname for me. And I think he's done that. I mean, Brady was even kind of lamenting last week that one of the downsides of COVID isolation is that you're pretty much limited to your position group in downtime. Yeah. So he said like, he doesn't like that the backup linebackers and defensive backs are guys he doesn't know as well because he hasn't been in meetings with them as often. And, and again, I, I just think the, the social aspect of I'm a six time Super Bowl winner. I'm the greatest, but I care about you. I want to know how your day was and his confidence rubs off his, ridiculous attention to detail, his work ethic, his coming in early, all these things we kind of wondered in the summer, like, are the Bucks going to rub off on Tom Brady or vice versa? And it's very much been the, the positive osmosis of his postseason success becoming their postseason success. As you've had all the conversations and things have trickled out over the course of the year, when you have success, teams are more apt to talk about this stuff and kind of pull the per- curtain back a little bit. What would you say was the number one kind of determining factor as to why he landed in Tampa compared to any other destination? I think of the realistic options for him, honestly, one thing that helped was the geography, the the logistics of being on the East Coast. His son, Jack, lives in New York City. I don't think he wanted to be out West and be so far removed. So Tampa was warm weather. It was in the NFC, which is a change of pace. It gave him easy access to family there. Landed Derek Jeter's mansion in Tampa on Davis Island. <laughs> rent. This massive place that's got jet skis. He bought a 40-foot boat just to be all the more Florida man here. Um, no, and, and I think he loved the weapons he had. You think about how long it's been since he really had Pro Bowl caliber receivers in New England. 
Um, he had two of them here. Like, I mean, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, you add Gronkowski. I think Bruce Arians as a coach certainly had good recommendations from guys like Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck and other quarterbacks that had developed with him, Ben Roethlisberger. That didn't hurt. The one other thing I wanted to ask you, because this had been something that was such a talking point all year, was the interaction between him and Bruce. And not only privately, but publicly, the things that Bruce would say and kind of the discourse into the media. How would you say the kind of tenor of the conversation between them and about one another has changed over the course of the year? I think in giving themselves kind of four months to figure each other out, there's a comfort level that wasn't always there. I don't think things were ever fractured. I don't think it was ever a chasm between coach and quarterback like some people. I think Brady people were a little bit surprised by how honest Bruce is and how blunt Bruce is in, in criticizing his players publicly. They didn't have that with Belichick. I think Tom knew what he was getting into there. And I think there was a little bit, there was maybe one week, I think after the Bears loss, maybe, where things were a little bit frosty, where I, I had asked one time about the criticism and Tom just had a very, Tom's usually good at, at kind of not answering things in a very uh, polite facade kind of way. And it was he's like, done this for a long time. Seriously, he's he's not answered questions for 20 years. So he, he had this very staccato, he's the coach, I'm the player, we're trying to win games. And it was just like this, oh, wow, I, I think Tom's actually a little bit bothered there. Like he, the usual veneer was gone for a second. But honestly, they, they got out of that. And once you made it to the bye week and then they rolled from there and it's all just been kumbaya since then. It's kind of funny. I mean, the, the conversations I've had with Bruce in the past, he'll really say anything. I mean, it's just, he'll say anything. There is very little, there's not a filter mechanism between what his brain thinks and what his mouth says. And that can take a little bit to get used to. And I'm sure if you're not, then there's an acclimation period. But we were talking to Ryan Lindley earlier this week about it. And it feels like after a certain amount of time, you almost appreciate it because there's just no mystery about where you stand. And I'm sure over time, even if that's a little bit jarring for people at first, there is a comfort level associated with it later on because you don't go home wondering ever. I came on, I joined the athletic in fall of 18 and then he signed on January 19. So I had like 19 years in newspapers where obviously you're not printing expletives at all. And you're <laughs> an ass becomes butt, and you kind of say sort of, and all these kind of things. And then I get to the athletic and they have like a total green light to write anything you want. And that happens while I have a coach who drops MFs like every other, every other day and will, I don't even know what I can say in this podcast, but speaks freely. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> I can quote him exactly as he says. It's just the perfect coach to have if you have the rights to the full vocabulary of all the things coaches can say. So you talked about the Bears game. I'm curious, we're going a little out of order here. I'm curious what you think was kind of the low point of this season, the moment where you and everyone else kind of sat back and thought, well, it was a good idea, but it's not going to work in 2020. Maybe this is going to take a little while to catch. Yeah, and it wasn't, the Bears was probably the worst loss because it's, it's just a team they, they knew they could have beaten, should have beaten. They were kind of injured that game. I still can't believe it happened. It's still very right. weird to me that that night happened. I remember that right. was at a point, it was early in the season and I had friends over and we watched it outside on my deck in my house because I wanted to watch the Bears game with friends, but couldn't have them in my house. So that's what we did. And we sat there and we sat outside with like blankets and watched the game. And I was sitting there like, I don't think the Bears are good, but they're five and one. Like I have no idea what's going on. Right. That that was bad, but that was almost like right off bad. And then when they lost to them, I mean, they lost the Saints 38 to three. It was 31, nothing at the half. Yeah. They weren't on the same field with them. And it was either that week, or the next week, I kind of wrote like, 
what if the Bucks are just a good team and not a great team? Like, what if they just take a baby step forward and they go from seven and nine to nine and seven, and that's it? And that that seemed like a real possibility. I mean, like losing by three to the Rams and the Chiefs in itself isn't anything shameful. They're seven and five, and they're facing like a Vikings team that's won like five of six or something. If they lose that game, they're on the outside looking in of the playoffs. And luckily, that's kind of right where things all solved themselves and all the pieces came locked together. And and since then, it's been unquestionably the best they've played. And it's interesting because I think you list off those teams, the Saints, the the Rams, those those two I kind of think are separate. They couldn't play well against good defenses. Every time they played against a good defense, even Chicago at that point was playing very well defensively. It just seemed like, and we've talked about it a lot on this show, they're so talented on offense. The offense was fairly simplistic. It was a, let's roll the ball out. Our guys are better than yours. And they were playing against teams where their guys weren't significantly better than their opponent. It showed. It showed that they didn't have a lot of built-in advantages with the structure of the offense, everything. And when their talent couldn't win out, they struggled. So what do you think was kind of that turning point eureka moment that allowed things to click and have them kind of step outside of that kind of problem? The chemistry on offense came together in the last month. They had a December where they got to face just dogs at the end of the year. It was like Falcons, <laughs> Lions, Falcons to finish the regular season. Uh, almost like a preseason kind of thing. And as a result, they just really clicked. You know, I mean, they had like 11 touchdowns and 15 drives at one point. Um, Antonio Brown, who was nearly non-existent in his first five games, no touchdowns, not even 10 yards a catch, had five touchdowns in five games. And all the missing pieces were kind of coming together. They defensively, they found themselves. And then especially as the postseason came, they've been a ball hawking, takeaway crazy, sack heavy defense that's absolutely closed out wins. I'm actually really, in uh, looking back on it now, I think it was quietly important for Bruce to play the starters the way that he did in week 17 because they had been rolling so much. And that Falcons defense had been playing better in the second half of the season. You think about what they did to the Chiefs not long before they played the Bucs in that week 17 game. And some of the things they found in that game, the play I'm thinking of specifically, is the one where Godwin motions over and takes it vertical up the left sideline and Brady just hits him with a perfect throw. And there were a few of those in that game. I think him and Godwin... It really showed off the chemistry they had developed in the back half of the year in that week 17 game. And I think understanding it's better for us to play this game and keep this rolling was a quietly important thing for them to do. Yeah. And that Falcons game, if you remember, had this terrible specter of the Mike Evans injury that really yeah. put a cloud on things. I mean, like Mike Evans got that record in the first quarter, um, goes to catch touchdown, his leg gets jammed. And it, I mean, the, 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 Paul that was cast over the stadium was tangible. Like it, I remember, yeah. And it's like you, you felt like fans couldn't even really celebrate touchdowns because it was like, is Mike Evans done for the year? Like, could Mike Evans have waited seven years to get to the playoffs and then hurt his knee in a meaningless game the week before the playoffs? So what happened, though, is that Godwin stepped up and went crazy. Antonio Brown had easily his best game. I think he had two touchdowns in that game. And everybody else stepped up. And you kind of saw that glimpse of why they – why they brought in Antonio Brown was just in case Evans or, or Godwin got hurt and they still rolled. I mean, it's an offense. They lost Mike Evans and they still scored a crazy amount of points. I say that it was a really good move and it kept their momentum going. But if Mike Evans actually had gotten hurt, it probably oh, yeah. wouldn't have been worth the trade off. So I'm about yeah. two inches away from sounding like an absolute moron with that. I think it felt like that week 13 by was honestly nicely timed for them. 
to have it that late in the season, typically you don't want that. But it feels like they really did have a chance to set back and recalibrate the offense a little bit, talk about what they wanted to do. When you've talked to people and watched them, do you think there are any specific tweaks that they were able to kind of sit back and consider during that off time that they've been able to implement here down the stretch? Not anything big. It almost seemed like in a basketball game when you call a timeout just to get your opponent out of rhythm. Yeah. Because just nothing was going right. And it's like you just call the timeout, two minutes, everybody relax, week off where you don't even really practice very much. It's funny. A lot of the things that smart people were saying they should do, they started doing. More motion, more play action, better commitment to the run game than they'd had, whether it was Jones or Fournette. All those things kind of came together and then defensively, they they clicked better, too. I mean, the first, the Vikings game wasn't that good. The Falcons game, they were down 17 nothing at the half in week 15 to the Falcons. Yeah. And that halftime is really where, like, the, the switch was flipped. And then they score, whatever, 31 in the second half of that Falcons game. And, and it's just bonkers from there. That's exactly why I wanted to do this podcast. Because I totally would have forgotten that. They had that week 17 Falcons game where they could not protect at all. They were having so much trouble with pressures and everything else. And for whatever reason, they clicked in in the second half and they've kind of been full speed ahead, like rocket ship ever since. So that moment was something where it clicked for them. When do you think it clicked for you? When do you think when you were sitting there and watching this team and really sitting with them, do you think you understood this team can win the Super Bowl? I went in the postseason thinking it might be like one win. Celebrate that one win. It's a big step. Now you can expect it next year. But going to New Orleans, I mean, the Saints team was so built to give Drew Brees a postseason, let him go out on top. They had... And they'd struggled so much against them. It it wasn't as if you had to kind of imagine this scenario where their offense was going to have a hard time against the Saints. We'd had it so recently and so vividly that you envisioned them struggling more than they did. Right. If If it was like middle school and there was a guy that had knocked you out with one punch, it's like it's like you were going to his locker, okay? And you have no expect. I mean, you can say that the regular season doesn't matter, but I mean, that was the the worst hour, the worst, that first half was their worst football of the year. And it didn't let up. 38-3. They kicked a field goal. It was like a mercy field goal to avoid a shutout. So to go from that to four turnovers and, you know, getting three picks against Drew Brees, this defense stepping up. Um, once they did that, then you're, you're going to Green Bay and it's like, well, they beat the Packers by 28 points in the regular season. Of course, they can win again as long as they play well. So winning in New Orleans is where you said, like, what, what if they what if they really do this? This could happen. And I've always said this about the Patriots. They had such a good understanding of the fact that after you get in, it's a series of one game tournaments every single week. All you need to do is just keep winning and kind of orchestrate these game plans each week that allow you to win these games as these little independent worlds and then you move on to the next one. And it really does feel like maybe it's just because Tom Brady's there, but this team has kind of taken on a similar feel. It's like they get to Green Bay and it's like, well, it's just one game. Like, I mean, there's this team is talented. They absolutely could win it. And that's what it seemed like. You know, they didn't play lights out in that game. Brady threw three interceptions, but you do just enough. You win. And we'll get to what they need to do on Sunday in a bit. But this has the same exact feel. It's like, well, you know, are they as good as the Chiefs? No, but they probably weren't as good as the Packers either. And they still managed to do it. And that's kind of the feel that they have right now. So we talked about the biggest move and kind of the overall arc. What do you think in terms of personnel and offseason additions is the most underappreciated, overlooked move or addition they made this spring? 
in the playoffs, I think you can point to signing Leonard Fournette. And you would have never said that in December because from October to December, he was nearly irrelevant. Couldn't make any big plays at all. Was getting like two and a half yards of carry. In week 14, they dressed LaShawn McCoy, who's done nothing all year, and Keyshawn Vaughn, who's a rookie with like 100 yards all season, and dressed them both ahead of Leonard Fournette. And it worked. And then to Fournette's benefit, Ronald Jones breaks his pinky and gets COVID and injures his quad. And there's this month-long window where Fournette suddenly is the starter and totally embraced it and made the most of it and had two 100-yard games in the playoffs, had two huge plays in Green Bay. After that bomb to Godwin in Green Bay, he has that 20-yard touchdown where he makes this beautiful inside yeah. spin move, dives into the end zone for a touchdown. We all talk about the Brady to Scotty Miller deep ball right before halftime. That only happens because we Fournette, sure do. Fournette caught a fourth and four ball for a first down to set it up with 13 seconds left in the half. So I think I think Fournette is the guy that it looked for much of the season like, yeah, this this is why the Jaguars cut this guy. He's just absolutely stepped up and given them an offensive balance when they were without a thousand yard rusher in Ronald Jones. That that's really been a difference in, in giving them some some offensive balance and rhythm in the postseason. I'm sure it's because there's less stuff taking our attention and we're drilling down at a more granular level on these games. But the playoffs are always those moments where those little end of the roster moves that you made always shine so bright. And again, going back to the Patriots, just because we have such a backlog of games with them in the postseason, that's where those moves always show up where you're sitting there being like, they traded a fifth round pick for Kyle Van Noy, like that kind of shit. It always came up with them over and over again. And that's how it feels with the Bucs right now, where you have Fournette making these plays in the postseason. How Vitavea played last week, where he's just a wrecking ball in all of these ways, even though he's only playing 35 snaps. It's like, oh yeah, like the little tiny additions like that really matter. Like Jordan Whitehead making that play on the forced fumble. It's just like the guys at the margins are so important in these games. And I think it really shines through. The other move that I would bring up, if we're just talking about, it's not overlooked because he was a first round pick, but... This team had two holes coming into the season that it needed to fill. That's it. They they were so talented on offense. And when I was thinking about their roster, you think they need a right tackle. They need a starting right tackle. And to get the best tackle in this draft, which I think he has been in Werfs, and having him start from day one, having him be an all-pro player, I don't think it can be overstated how important that's been for them. On the other side of the ball, when they drafted him, there are receipts, and I'm very proud of them. When they drafted Antoine Winfield Jr., I said that is the last thing their defense needed. They needed a playmaking safety. That's what they needed. They needed a guy who could take the ball away, just kind of add this volatility to what they did defensively, and that's exactly what he's been. And the fact that they had those two spots, and they drafted for need in two straight rounds, and they found star-level players in both cases, it just shows you that every once in a while, when you want to win a championship, when you want to be the best team, Sometimes you need to get a little bit lucky. And that's exactly what happened to them in the draft this year. It was cool. Like in January last year, the Athletic didn't send their Minnesota writer to the Outback Bowl. So I got to cover it. Like they asked me to cover the Outback Bowl. And I'm like, oh, sure. Why not? You know, go get a Bloomin' Onion, cover a college football game for old time's sake. Sure. I'd love that. Um, not, and I like went into that game thinking I was going to write Antoine Winfield. And the guy that, that I wrote about that day is the guy they took in the fifth round, Tyler Johnson, who's a stud receiver. Um, I had the luck to see two of their draft picks in their final game. And they, they both play. I mean, Winfield had such a great year. And I, I remember I'm talking to his 
dad's agent, like during the game, trying to figure out like, hey, is this his last game? Could I be writing about him going to the NFL? <laughs> realizing he's coming here to not only play his entire season in Tampa, but to play a Super Bowl in Tampa on that field. Uh, Winfield has, has won more playoff games in the last month than his dad did in 14 years in the NFL. That's such a bummer because his dad was one of my favorite right. players of all time. It's just his dad was such a product of a different era of football, like that slot receiver in a cover two defense. Just he is such a, a reminder of an era that no longer exists. He could play now, obviously, but I just he's so emblematic of what football back then was like. Sometimes when you look at what the final four rosters are comprised of, we did a little bit of this kind of recalibration with Therese Paler last week. Sometimes you can read a little too far into it, but I do think the fact that both of these teams have that malleable, playmaking, undersized former college football superstar in Tyron Matthew and Antoine Winfield, I just believe so much that there's a ton of value in that guy. That just shit-stirring chaos creator that's going to take the ball away from you on the other side of the ball. It just feels like all the teams that get to this game have at least one of those guys. Yeah, and, and Winfield, I think they've really just scratched the surface of what he can do. Because I, I remember totally. talking talking to Fleck uh, the night that they drafted Winfield, and and he said he covers like a corner, he hits like a linebacker, and he can cover ground like a center fielder because he just has all of those things, and you're never aware that he's a rookie. There's no lost look. The Giants game is a, another bad game for the Bucs. They almost lose that game. They're up eight. They let the Giants go all the way down the field two-point conversion to win, and Winfield covers an incredible amount of space and basically runs into the receiver. On the two-point conversion. That's right. Two-point conversion. And yeah. they actually threw the flag. They threw the flag and then took it up and said no penalty occurred, which is a huge break for Winfield because instead of him being the, the scapegoat on what ends up like a overtime loss or something, he made the game-winning play. But he, he covers a sick amount of ground to get there and, and break up the pass. And he's done that all year. Like I said, he's had – you go back to the Saints, and it's a very uncertain game in the second half. And Winfield just absolutely punches the ball loose from Jared Cook. And Devin White picks it up and takes the 20. And next thing you know, they're scoring. And all the momentum in the world is in the Bucks' favor from that point on. And Winfield has done that all year long. That's amazing. It's so true. All right. Who is the most important player that we're not thinking about when you're considering where this team is and how they got here? I would think it has to start with Levante David, just because yeah. he's so underappreciated as a leader of this team, as kind of the the heart of this team, um, perpetually underappreciated as like a Pro Bowl snub and all those kind of things, but just does everything they ask him to do on defense, covers so much ground. Uh, Devin White is probably faster. Devin White has nine sacks, which is, you know, it's crazy for an inside linebacker. But I think Levante David, just the – reliable presence that he is in the middle of that defense. Um, he had a big sack, I think at the end of the Washington game in the playoffs, had like a third down sack on their last drive to kind of close it out. Um, you know, Levante has been here since 2012, nine years, no playoff games. So when you think about people that are deserving of the success they're having right now, it has to start with him. I completely agree. I've had a lot of conversations about him this week with people, people that coached him back in the day, people that played with him. And you really just forget how steady of a presence he's been for 10 years. And I've said it before on this podcast and people give me shit about it. I don't really care. I think he's the most underrated defensive player of the last decade. If you go and you look at, this isn't a perfect stat, but if you go look at pro football reference in stat head and you sort it by approximate value, 
since 2012. Again, an imperfect statistic, but one that I think gives you a sense. I think he's 13th or 12th among defensive players over the last 10 years. Every single other player in the top 15 has been to at least four Pro Bowls. He's been to one. He, he just got pinned in this position where he's up against Keekley, he's up against Bobby Wagner, and he just was seen as less than those two every year. So Ke- if you look at Keekley, Keekley has like nine Pro Bowls, will be a Hall of Famer, absolutely. It's going to be tough because in whatever, seven or eight years, whenever And Bobby Lund- Wagner too will. And Bobby Wagner's going to the Pro Bowl. He's been all pro six years. Right. London has one Pro Bowl and one All-Pro in his career. 1,000 tackles, 128 tackles for loss, 12 picks, 24 sacks, but has nothing to show for it in all the currencies that Canton looks at and, and the selection committee looks at for Hall of Fame. I totally agree. And the, the stats that always jump out to me, the one year in 2013 when he had five sacks and five interceptions, I think there have only been eight seasons in NFL history where a player has had five sacks and five interceptions in the same year. You know, the guys on that list, Darius Leonard did it recently, but everyone else is back way back when. Uh, Wilbur Marshall did it for the Bears in 86. Brian Urlacher did it one year. Sean Springs did it one year. I mean, guys that were the best players in the NFL when they played, and I think he has been that. And I just, I had a conversation with Gerald McCoy about it. I'm writing about Levante David later this week, if people were curious. I, I had no a conversation as much. <laughs> I, I had a conversation with Gerald McCoy, and, and McCoy brought up the fact that that first year in 2012, when he was a rookie, uh, Mason Foster was the defensive play caller, and Foster got hurt right before the season started. And Levante had to call the defensive plays as a rookie from day one. And he, it, he was fine, he just had no issues with it whatsoever. And just that steadying presence. And what my favorite stat associated with him is if you look at the games in which he's played, he's been hurt a little bit. For the most part, he's been healthy. But he plays over 98% of the snaps in the games where he's healthy. He never, ever comes off the field. And just that presence and being a guy who can do everything and be relied on to that degree, I just think it's impossible to overstate how good of a football player he's been over the last 10 years. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like he had a hamstring, um, like the third quarter of the Packers game, I guess he hurt his hamstring and he showed up on the injury report, like the off week by week injury report with a hamstring. And there's just this like, wow, if they don't have Levante David, like you'd think the same way, like if Brady was out, like, yeah, I'm not sure it's going to happen. <laughs> and you just don't ascribe that to linebackers, but that's right. exactly the presence that he is. Have you gotten a sense for what kind of give back and forth there's been with him and White, their old linebackers coach? Uh, Mark Duffner said that when he yeah. was working with Quan, they had a really good rapport where he was just some guys. They're really they withhold that they, they play close to the vest with guys that are younger than them because they're insecure about their job. You, it's, you don't have guaranteed contracts in the NFL. There isn't this. Let me help everyone. But with Quan, he was an open book. It's like, this is how I study. This is how I watch things. What's the sense you've gotten for what the back and forth with him and Devin has been like? No, very positive. I mean, Devin is a different personality. Levante is very even keel, very understated, very poised and careful in what he says. Devin White is, is absolutely 22 <laughs> years old and twice as enthusiastic as he needs to be about everything in life, but it's wonderful. And it's a good foil to Levante because you'll see them. And, and like, it was neat in that I think post game in, in Green Bay, when they had like the mic'd up, you could really see Levante being a kid for a minute and celebrating yeah. something he's waited nine years to get to do. But yeah, Devin White, like I said, it, it, there's a an interplay between the two of them, and it's kind of it's not quite the old dog and the pup that wants to play all the time because <laughs> Levante can still move and has plenty of speed. Don't get me wrong, 
But it's just that there's an excitement and an energy that Devin White wakes up with that's hard to match. And I think there's an energy that comes with that. It's two different kinds of leadership right next to each other, and they work really well together because of that. Last Levante David thing before we move on. <laughs> I think it's the craziest thing in the world that the three best off-ball linebackers of a generation were taken in the same draft. The fact that Keekly, Bobby Wagner, and Levante David all went in the same draft, and with Bobby Wagner and Levante David in the same round of the same draft, it's just such a strange quirk associated with just talent influx in the NFL. Right. And then there's this thing in Tampa where um, it's always like the guy you didn't draft that's the absolute thorn in the fans like, oh, because yeah. the buck at the top of the draft took Mark Barron instead of Keekly. Yeah. And you have to tell them, like, if you don't make that mistake, you don't get Levante in the second round. So you have to embrace that mistake that was taking Mark Barron instead of Keekly because it gave you Levante David in the second round as like as good a draft steal as you can ask for at that point. Gerald McCoy, again, played with both of them. I think Gerald McCoy would tell you they are a lot closer as players than other people from the outside would tend to think. So, And he would know better than most. Keekly, insanely smart. The best linebacker I know at absolutely calling out the play as it's happening to where the opposing quarterback just has to hope that the rest of the defense can't process what Luke is telling them. But in terms of making plays on the field, I mean, Keekly's probably better at intercepting passes, dropping back in coverage. But in terms of filling a stat sheet, in terms of being everywhere on a field, Levante is right there with him. It's not the eight to one, nine to one, whatever the Pro Bowl scorecard is for those two. That's certainly right. So let's go to the coaching staff because this is a staff that has been talked about a lot, and rightfully so. When you think about the amount of minority just coaches in high-level positions and the way that they're kind of pushing, bucking trends and, and being forward-thinking and doing things that other teams should be, is there a member of that staff that over the course of the year, whether it's his position group or a conversation you've had with that person, that you think has had an outsized impact on this team that people probably aren't thinking or talking enough about? I mean, I think there's so much attention given on the Buck staff to Todd Bowles and Byron Lefwich as future head coach. I mean, Bowles has already been a head coach, but but as potential future head coaches, I think the next tier, Harold Goodwin is is vastly underappreciated. He doesn't have mm-hmm. a positional role. I think they call him run game coordinator, kind of oversees the offensive line. But Goody has been with Arians in Pittsburgh, in Indy, in Arizona, and here kind of goes with him. Bruce was saying yesterday in a Zoom that like he, he might not take the Bucks job if he doesn't know he can have Harold Goodwin on his staff. And the same thing goes for Byron. He wouldn't have taken it if Byron, Byron couldn't have called plays. It was a condition upon him taking the job. And Bruce, I think, has done such a good job in Tampa of delegating to these assistants and trusting these assistants. Todd Bowles is very much a second head coach, a head coach of the defense. But like I said, Goody, Goody on, on offense is absolutely underappreciated as a, a guy that's not a play caller, is not the quarterback's coach, but probably as important as those positions, as those coaches are. Defensively, Larry Foote's a really neat story in that he's yeah. younger than Tom Brady, was like a freshman <laughs> when Brady was a senior, and he's like a seventh-year position coach in the NFL, and, and a really good guy that could be a coordinator next. It's like if you have one of these coaches splinters off to get their own staff before Bruce retires, I think Foot could very easily go with and be a defensive coordinator. Casey Rogers, the D-line coach, was Todd Bowles' D coordinator with the Jets, so it could be him as well. But not only are there future head coaches on this staff, I think they're really good coordinators that could come from this staff as well. And position coaches. Just even mentioning Jay Rogers having been a former coordinator, they have so much competence at like every single level. And I remember talking to Bruce last summer about Byron. I did a story about Byron being the only black play caller in the NFL, which he still is. And Bruce said that 
I asked him, I said, what's different now? You know, now that you're the head coach, you're not calling plays. He said that maybe like the first week or two, he was in offensive meetings and he eventually realized Byron can do this and he just let him do it. And the trust he seems to have in those guys and just how much history he has with so many of the guys on the staff and the delegation that he can do because of that and his outsized role in personnel because of that now. It's just all of this stuff kind of comes together and that's how you have teams like this that are on the precipice of a title. The single most amazing thing about the staff is the lifelong loyalty that they have to each other because yes. he had, I mean, Bowles played for him at Temple. Keith Armstrong played for him at Temple. Ross played for him at Temple. Uh, Clyde Christensen coached with it's, it's like this 35 year reunion every day. And then like Nick Rapone, who's the safeties coach played with Nick him. A, he's a trip, man. That guy's a character. Nick's great. Nick's great. But again, he's known Bruce for 50 years. Yeah. To where if there's a guy that you kind of know how he operates and, and what he'll tolerate from you and exactly how he gets the job done, 50 years together is outstanding. Again, I just wrote about Tom Moore. I love Tom Moore to death. Tom Moore has like all these relationships with all these guys and won a Super Bowl in 1979 when Tom Brady was 15 months old. So all we do is talk <laughs> about how old Brady is and he's got 40 years on Tom Brady. So it, like I said, the, the connections on this staff are really special. I have two more things for you. When you think about this season, no matter how it ends, I mean, it will, I guess it'll depend on how it'll end. But when you think about this Buck season, what's the first thing that you'll think about? Um, just, just how much it changed the franchise. I mean, I was lucky yeah. enough where I got to cover their their O two season and the run they had. But that that was kind of the end of the era. Like after that, that they didn't win a playoff game again. They made the playoffs, but it, they just didn't really have good teams. And then, you know, as long as I've been around the team. It, it just hasn't been a winning team. It hasn't had the culture. They got close to making the playoffs in 16, but they really weren't a dominant team. So for them to instantly in one year change that and reset all the clocks. I mean, every year was like how many years since they made the playoffs, how many years since they won in the playoffs, what they're picking in the draft, all the same conversations. And this has changed all that. All, all the clocks are new in terms of how long it's been since they're in a Super Bowl, and as crazy as it sounds, they have Tom Brady as their quarterback. It, it, it you go back even a year and say that, I, I just tell you, yeah, I, I don't think he's leaving New England, and, and if he did, I don't think he's coming to Tampa. So it, that that part of it is the most, I say it's somewhere between incredulous and incredible, but it's where it is. Last one, the Bucks will win this game if what? If their defense which gets turnovers from teams that don't commit turnovers can do it with Patrick Mahomes and get, I'll say a third turnover one or two, you can still overcome, but they have to get takeaways from this chief's defense and not commit them themselves. All right. That makes total sense. When you're the underdog, you need those sort of swinging plays. So I, I totally get that. Greg Allman, thank you very much. Do you have anything you want to plug anything else you're working on this week that people should definitely check out? I mean, you're doing stuff all the time, but anything you're particularly excited about? Yeah, no, I've got a feature on Sean Murphy Bunting that's coming out. He's there at the corner that's had picks in all three playoff games and his mom and their relationship. Uh, I got a big Bruce Arians feature. Talked to Chuck Pagano, talked to his wife, talked to Brady, talked to lots of people. Just about Bruce called it the most rewarding season of his career. And I think that's a lot, a lot of years to beat out. So I thought that was a really strong statement. And just whatever else uh, crazy comes out of Zooms and out of Super Bowl week here in the next uh, five days. I think that the the Bruce thing is I I've talked with a lot of people about it. We've had Ryan Lindley on the show. We're going to have a couple more people I think to talk about Bruce. The thing that really jumps out to me is he's somebody that's been in, in our minds for so long, but he waited a really really long time to become a head coach. I mean, it seems like he's been around for a while, but it's only 2013. You know, he was in his 60s when yeah. he got that chance. 
And the fact that now he's right there on the doorstep and winning a Super Bowl changes everything for you. It's a really cool moment for somebody that a lot of people in the game really like. So I'm really excited about reading that and everyone else should be checking it out as well. Greg, thank you very much for the time, man. Always good to chat. We'll catch up with you later. Thanks, Robert. Take care. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? Show up for a friend? Show up for yourself? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Showing up for yourself, that's a big one. That's exactly what therapy is, doing what you need to do, carving out the time that you need to make sure that you can show up for yourself and take care of what you need. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash maze today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash maze. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, I'm very excited now to welcome my good buddy, the Athletics Chiefs writer, Nate Taylor. Nate, how you doing, man? Good, Robert. Good, man. Uh, I feel like I'm kind of getting excited for this game, but I just, you know, I want to act like I've actually been there before for once. Well, you have actually been there before, though. This is old hat for you now. It's kind of wild, you know, going around from Zoom to Zoom instead of just, you know, running with your, you know, not knowing who's in what direction. But, yeah, this is... Uh, this was kind of the expectation back on September 10th when the NFL season started, right? So, what was your what's been your favorite Chiefs Zoom moment this week? Has anything <laughs> happened that was particularly interesting or fun? I always love Steve Spagnuolo, right? Um, yeah, kind of a, a under the radar guy, but gives you really good stuff. Uh, he walks into the Zoom and he understands that 
Hey, I'm supposed to see everybody's faces. Where, where's everybody's face? It's we were just, just me. talking about that with Greg. We were just talking about how weird <laughs> just it is. Me. There are and these it, disembodied voices coming yes. at them every ten seconds. It's so bizarre. So, so it was really comforting when the moderator goes, "Okay, the next question is coming from Nate Taylor from the Athletic," and I could kind of, I could kind of see him grin because he like <laughs> he knows who I am. And he's like, "Hey, Nate," and it's just like, "Hey, I'm, I'm just." You know, here in my, you know, makeshift home office, you can't see me. I, I can barely see you. Uh, let's talk about, you know, Blitz and Tom Brady. You going to do that a lot on Sunday? <laughs> it's Spagnuolo is one of those guys that no matter how many times you hear it, you're still not ready for the accent. Every oh. single time it sneaks up on you. That yep. just like thick, thick Massachusetts accent. And every single time you've ever, I've ever talked to him, it's just like, oh, I'm not ready for this. And then it just comes out. It's like, man, that is a Massachusetts boy. All right. Let's get to a slightly altered set of questions to the one I asked, Greg. Because as it relates to the Chiefs, some of these are not that appropriate. And I was too lazy to come up with two specific sets of questions. So we're just going to do a little tailoring, if you will. See what I did there? Yeah. Okay. All right. First one is going to be the same, though. If you're thinking about this offseason for the Chiefs, what do you think the most important offseason addition or move Kansas City made was? Can I do this in two categories? I mean, one is like they signed the best player in the league to a 10-year contract. That is essentially... That count. That doesn't okay. count. I was I was gonna say because like it's a ten year deal that's more like six, but like that was the most important offseason move, but it wasn't an addition. Who is the most important thing person that was brought in? That's what I should have said. Oh, there hasn't been a lot of turnover on this team, so it's it's a little bit harder. Yeah, this is where it gets tricky. There's no Tom Brady. <laughs> oh, you know, just the greatest quarterback of uh, of the Super Bowl era. I think the greatest addition to this team in like a very I don't want to say like weird way, but it kept things afloat in a manner that I didn't anticipate, and I'm sure the Chiefs didn't either. This team would not be 14 and one with Mahomes as its quarterback if Mike Rimmers isn't on the team. I mean, a very underrated signing where it's like, hey, can you replace the swing tackle that used to be Cam Irving, which is now in Dallas? And, you know, you go through those guys. When you have, obviously, a top-heavy roster, but nobody could foresee Mitchell Schwartz having a back injury that basically wipes out his season because he was the most consistent, durable right tackle in the league. And then Eric Fisher... Right tackle, player in NFL history. Hey, um, there, there's... I'm just saying, like, there, he he played the most consecutive snaps <laughs> in the history of the league. <laughs> it's him and Brett Favre and, and, like, you know, Eli Manning. Yeah, I mean, uh, very good catch. You, you know, and... I it's been such a weird season that like I don't even think about Mitchell Schwartz anymore, which is kind of sad because he's so consistently great at football. And now the Chiefs are going to have to deal with you know Eric Fisher, and we all kind of knew Robert um, when he went down against the Buffalo Bills. That looks to be an Achilles. It is an Achilles. Um, who knows how long his timetable is going to be for next year? But they're going to play a Super Bowl with Andrew Wiley as the right tackle and yeah. Mike Rimmers who. Didn't have a great day in 2015 to end the season with the Carolina Panthers, but now he gets a shot at redemption. Um, pretty much protecting Patrick Mahomes' blind side. Because one thing that fans have to realize is the Chiefs drafted, I think, a pretty good prospect in Lucas Niang in the third round. He could have been perhaps that backup tackle if you bring him along slowly throughout his rookie season of a maturation phase. 
But, I mean, if you would have asked me this in August, there's no way I'm saying Mike Rimmers. Maybe you say someone like Clyde Rizzolaire. But I think for protecting your greatest asset, Mike Rimmers has done an admirable job, and he's going to have to do it one more time in the Super Bowl. I think it's actually a really good point because it brings up two like kind of separate ideas. One, with these championship caliber rosters, and especially the way that they've been built, the churn is always so important on the back end. And that yes. spot, it almost feels like close to veteran minimum experienced offensive lineman is going to be an annual kind of thing for this team because of how much money they're going to have and yep. the turnover at that spot. Last year, it was Wisniewski. This yes. year, it's Mike Remmers. It almost feels like that's a spot on the Chiefs roster. And when you're in this position, that's the exact type of thing you're going to have to do every single year. Those are the moves, and those are where that's where a guy like Brett Veach's mind is going to have to be in a similar way. The Patriots come up, have come up a bunch on this podcast already, but that's when you're winning championships every mm-hmm. year. Those are the types of things that the Patriots had to do, and that's exactly where the Chiefs are. That is the position they now hold in the league. And, and Brett Veach is very clear about this whenever you would talk to him. Once we knew Patrick Mahomes was Patrick Mahomes, they're always going to have an advantage in that regard, similar to what the Patriots had with Tom Brady. Hey, do you want to come play for a Hall of Fame coach in Andy Reid and, you know, the quarterback that's on the fastest track to be a Hall of Famer in Patrick Mahomes, who's in the prime of his career? So um, they're going to have to continue to find bargains and find true value and guys that can obviously fit the culture, understand the system, can play at a high level when called upon in a quick circumstance similar to, you know, what Rimmers has had to go through because he's playing both right and left tackle depending upon who's available and what the team needs at that week. But yeah, I mean, Mike Rimmers has been a really nice addition. Uh, Every time I've talked to him, I've come away pretty impressed. And one thing that I've asked him, you know, a couple weeks ago was he was on that great Panthers team that kind of ran through the league and obviously ran into Von Miller in the Super Bowl, but he sees some similarities in how dominant, how consistent the Panthers were and what the Chiefs are doing now in understanding that it's his role to not really get the Chiefs off track, not to be a real issue, to always have the answers when necessary, just because you're playing with Patrick Mahomes, and as long as you stay steady, Patrick Mahomes is going to float everybody else with him. With this team, and they're going to be such a fixture that I think it's going to be hard to find things that are new about them every single year. So as you're kind of thinking about the way they've added talent, the way they think about the roster, what about their team building? Pro- this wasn't on your list. And I'm, I'm springing this on you. This is what great. about their team building philosophy or overall approach? Do you think has what new aspect of it do you think has become apparent to you? What have you learned about it in the last year that you may have not even known the, before the first time they won a Super Bowl? Yeah, it's such a good topic because you explained it really well, Robert. It's getting to the point now where, okay, what is new? And it's going to get harder and harder to, to have some of these new fresh faces uh, that can inject you know some energy and some real production. So much of what I've learned over the last couple of years, particularly when it comes to Brett Veach and how his philosophy sort of matches Andy Reid, they don't think exactly the same, but they obviously have worked in tandem enough to know what the roster needs at a time for a year, two years, and obviously moving forward. As Mahomes' contract is going to obviously get larger and larger uh, moving forward, no matter how the cap sort of figure it, itself out from the pandemic. Brett Reach is always going to look for guys with high potential and an ability to not just be coachable. I mean, every team would want that right. But an ability to know that are they going to listen to the guys in the locker room? And this is why it's so important to have Tyron Matthew 
to have Anthony Hitchens, who's not a big name, but is a really respected guy who knows everything that can be for a linebacker in Steve Spagnuolo's system. Obviously, he has the the green dot in terms of the calls and understanding how to get everybody set up. Patrick Mahomes will come to Brett Veach and say, well, how is this player looking? What do you think about this? It's going to be a more collaborative effort moving forward. And so a guy like Legereus Need, a guy like Tershawn Wharton, these were not high recruited, highly sought prospects out of the draft. Can you but please tell the people who Tershawn Wharton is? Tershawn Wharton um, is a he is a dream come true. I, I like <laughs> to tell people I didn't even know who Tayshawn Wharton was during training camp, and I was watching him practice in front of my own eyes. So he comes from a Division II school, Missouri S&T. Had some good measurables. Is in that terms Rolla? Of, yeah, that's Rolla. They go digging. And this is kind of to the point, right? I mean, I feel like a lot of teams didn't scout Legereus Need enough at Louisiana Tech because they had a general idea of his of who he was before his last year of college. But the Chiefs were pretty much on him uh, from the moment they... Do the Chiefs have like a weird monopoly and inefficiency with tech schools? Is that like what's going to happen now? Here's the thing. I... I, I you know, Brett Veach, I, I don't know if I'm giving away secrets, really, but they like the Southeast. They obviously are getting better at scouting players in their own region, particularly Michigan, Ohio, Missouri, S&T, of course. But they found some guys in the South, even, you know, Rashad Fitton, who back in the a couple draft classes ago, I thought, how was how Rashad Fitton making this roster based on anything that I had sort of come to understand who he was as a college player. Well, you realize he had some injuries, but he's super coachable and technique sound. And so he makes up for that based on obviously his true talent and maybe his, you know, footwork and hip fluidity. But the dude is just really knowledgeable and is flexible. And so what the Chiefs are going to have to do moving forward is finding more of those guys who are, one, thrilled to be in the NFL, Two, are going to continue to work because that's what they've always had to do to make it to wherever they've been, whether that's at Division Two or at a lower, you know, major college program. And a lot of this comes down to the NFL, for some reason, has not dismantled the Chiefs coaching staff, Robert. It makes no sense. I mean, Sam Madison was a former NFL cornerback. He's come aboard and done a great job. With guys like not just Tyron Matthew, but obviously Bashad Breeland, you know, there was a time for a lot of guys to really get better. I mean, there's a case we made that in a few years from now, because this is his fifth Super Bowl, that Brendan Daly may one day become a defensive coordinator. Obviously, he came from the New England Patriots. Eric Bieniemy still around. There's a real continuity and a real advantage to them knowing what they want to look for finding out who that player is, and then really coaching them over the course of a season to where, you know, even someone like Clyde Edwards-Alaire could have a big game, even though his numbers have kind of been, you know, up and down throughout the season. There's a way for Andy Reid to coach opportunities for Clyde Edwards-Alaire. There's a way for Steve Spagnuolo to get reps for Harshon Wharton with no preseason, you know, no offseason program. And even though he's coming from a Division II school he can hold up and be a legitimate rotational player on their 53-man roster when anybody in the league could have had him so they're gonna have to do that moving forward and their draft classes in the next three years are going to be massively pivotal to making sure that they always have that young talent available to them under cost control circumstances given 
the massive contracts they handed out this past offseason. I think the impact and the contributions they've gotten from their the last three draft classes really are underrated in what this team is right now because it's so easy to be blinded by what Mahomes is and kind of have that offense and the star power overshadow everything. Yes. The fact that Derek Nadi is a really useful he's, player up front really as a run stopper for them. The yeah. fact that Nick Allegretti starts for them and is being he can hold up in mm-hmm. NFL games as a second as a seventh round pick from 2019. Rashad Fenton played this year before they got the Jerry Sneed on the field. Right. Ron Thornhill has been really, really good as of late and has really come on for them after getting hurt as a rookie. Obviously, Legereus Sneed has been great. So they're getting contributions from these guys. So can I tell you my what I've really learned about them team building wise in this in this year where it seems like there's nothing new to learn about them? Sure, let's hear it. They're going to keep their foot on the gas offensively until the, for the rest of time. Oh. They are they are not going to sit back and say mm-hmm. we have Mahomes, that's enough. I I heard from someone that if one of the receivers had been on the board, I think it maybe would have been Jefferson, they would have taken Jefferson. Which, if you're thinking about it, that sounds freaking crazy. Yeah. But that's that's how they're thinking about this. I think they understand we're going to win this thing every year because we are going to have the best offense possible. And we have to understand that we have to make little tweaks at these spots and look for upgrades, even if they may not seem that important to people from the outside. I still wouldn't have drafted a running back in the first round, but mm-hmm. I do think it really shines a light on the way that they're thinking about this and kind of what their where their priorities lie, even if it seems like there isn't much further they can go on offense. Yeah, and I would just say moving forward, um, when the Chiefs are on the clock, wide receiver, offensive lineman, they could just interchange yeah. those for the next five years and just be fine. And yep. it doesn't matter if the wide receiver's small. It doesn't matter if the wide receiver's tall or if he's got long striding, you know, to be a little bit of a bit of a change of pace with Tyreek Hill or Miko Hartman, who's obviously trying to develop into a speed threat, you know, on a more consistent basis. But, yeah, I just think you're right, Robert. Moving, like, the top three rounds, wide receiver, offensive lineman, you could just, whoever the best is, however you grade them. And then it really comes down to, the coaching staff and what we talked about with all the guys you just mentioned, Derek Nadi, Rashad Fitton, Tershawn Wharton, Legereus Need, all those guys are third round or lower. And that's kind of a, you know, uh, a layman's terms, blueprint for what they want to do. Now, obviously they drafted Willie Gay in the second round of this past draft. He's a athletic linebacker. He is also hurt. He will not play in the Super Bowl. So there's chances for them to obviously change up. But I think philosophically, they want to throw the ball. They want to throw the ball. And the reason, partly why they drafted Clyde was hilarious because he was a great dual threat player as a receiver yep. coming out of LSU where he was really just embarrassing Alabama linebackers in coverage. <laughs> and you just don't ever see that. So they may have not used Edwards Alaire or gotten to as many passing plays as they would have liked with him. But, you know, part of that is because you got a Hall of Fame tight end in Travis Kelsey. You got the league's fastest player, Tyree Kill. You know, there's only one ball, but Andy Reid always wants weapons. And it just makes sense given who he has as his quarterback because that guy is playing at a higher level than he ever has before. And again, that that's a little terrifying because he's only been a three year starter. So I was going to ask you what the most underrated or unappreciated move of their season was. We talked a lot about Logarius Sneed on the last time we talked, though. Would you say that's the answer? Would you say finding Logarius Sneed in the fourth round is probably the most overlooked but big move that they made this year? 
Yeah, and no one really saw it coming. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, you know, Legereus Need, I, I'd kind of been given an idea of like, okay, here's who this player is. Here's what we can think. You know, maybe he's in the rotation as a rookie. No one, you know, unless you were um, very bold, was going to say that this guy was going to be the <laughs> best rookie cornerback coming out of this draft class. I mean, he's really fast. He's faster than what he had projected at at the Combine. Uh, so the Chiefs get fortunate there. Obviously, they've coached him. And he really has no weaknesses. But the thing that blew my mind away, Robert, both in the moment watching it live in the press box at Arrowhead and then kind of going through the tape, you know, 36 hours later is, I mean, Legereus Need was, you know, hip for hip with Stefan Diggs. Like, I don't yeah. know. I, I I just keep telling myself that since that game happened. And I'm like, Stefan Diggs is, <laughs> is, is great. Uh, he he has been, you know, embarrassing people all year. He's been finding ways to get separation. He's been finding ways to beat zone coverage or man coverage. The Chiefs played a lot more man against Stefan Diggs than previous teams. And LeJarius Knee was in the mix, and he just wasn't. It he doesn't play like a rookie, and it's yeah, it's wild because I'm just I'm just I'm just waiting for being like, all right, where's the rookie <laughs> moment? Where's the rookie wall? Where does somebody beat you on coverage or where your eyes are or you know if they motion a receiver and it sort of screws up you know what your responsibilities are? It just it just doesn't happen. So whatever they knew about Legereus Steed mentally is something that we're trying to uncover at the athletic right now, which hopefully you can, <laughs> hopefully you can get to read before Sunday's game. But he plays at a mental level that even impresses Tyron Matthew, and that's kind of saying a lot as a rookie. So obviously this team is in a different position than a lot of teams that make the Super Bowl just because they're such a known quantity. We expected them to do this again. But if you were thinking about this season, not necessarily the turning point because it's kind of been one steady it's been a steady climb that hasn't necessarily had a lot of urgency. Let's say that. <laughs> we talked about this. This is their, like, we're coasting to the Super Bowl moment, and that's exactly what they did. Yep. But do you think that there was a particularly telling point where this team, either offensively or defensively, learned something important about itself? Man, I I keep trying to think about, obviously, who they're, who they're facing on Sunday, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um, I think the best half of football that that defense played in the regular season was in the first half where they really confused Tom Brady. They forced him to play at a tempo that he really wasn't comfortable with. They were physically able to match the, the, the wide receivers, Mike Evans, of course, who's just such a really good receiver. And, um, it took Tom Brady some time and it was a fun game towards the end, but I get the sense that, okay, we know the Buccaneers are a really talented group, and it was going to take them, you know, maybe longer than it would have under normal circumstances, not in a pandemic season where they had more time to get reps in. But I think on the defensive side, a lot of it was, okay, planted a, you know, a, a conference opponent who may be your opponent in the Super Bowl. That's always interesting for guys. They always want to get up for that. And knowing that there's still more to be done just because for 30 minutes they played great, and then all of a sudden the game sort of shifted in Tom Brady's, you know, sort of favor. He started to figure things out. And now it's going to be not only just a physical game on Sunday, but I think it's going to be a real chess match as to who can make the adjustments or who can understand what is coming to them at a quicker pace um, in play call and design. I think the Chiefs offense has just been... It's been a rocket ship. There's no denying that. And I think the defense... Yeah, it's just been a nine all year. I think the defense is where I would focus. And I think... The Bucs game is a great example. 
And if we're looking for things that are new with this team, I think they reside on defense. And last year, it felt like with Spagnuolo coming in, we just need to be good enough. Mm-hmm. We just need to have this level of competency that can get us there. Yep. And I think that Bucks game, and to a degree, there are a couple other games this year that felt like this. But I think this is the year, especially down the stretch, where this defense, the light bulb went off. It's like, oh, we can bully people. Mm-hmm. Like, we can actually be the team that pushes people around. We can dictate games. We can create the tempo. And I really think that you've seen that attitude kind of filter through this defense and this confidence and kind of swagger build with them. And I know that kind of stuff can be overrated, but I really do feel like that unit has that feel a lot more now than they would have at this time last year. Yeah, I I agree because I think the Buffalo Bills, for instance, were a more complete offense than what the Tennessee Tennessee Titans were in the AFC Championship game. They were so... They were so reliant on Derrick Henry, and at some point, this historic pace had to kind of slow down, right? So the Chiefs were, you know, on the defensive end, you know, they were kind of, I won't say given a a, a smoother path, but it really wasn't as multiple of an offense as what the Buffalo Bills were going to do. Obviously, Josh Allen was playing at a very high level. He was the leading rusher, but there were more things that the Chiefs could throw at the Bills just as much as the Bills were a more dynamic offense than what the Tennessee Titans showed. And that goes, again, down to the secondary getting a lot better than it was yep. a year ago. And you're not super reliant on Chris Jones to just be a complete Aaron Donald, you know, carbon copy monster on third down. Like, there are some third downs where Chris Jones doesn't have to be this superhero to sort of get the quarterback off his spot or to get the throw out a little bit sooner than later. They can actually get these coverage sacks now that in a way were um, were not achievable last year under Spagnuolo, even though they had Tyron Matthew in the back end, and obviously Juan Thornhill did not play in the in the in the postseason last year because of his ACL injury. So there are some changes, but I feel like they're they're a unit that can match one another when necessary. Oh, we need more coverage here; we can go get it. Versus, okay, we're in the red zone now. Can we get some pressure on the quarterback so that you know we're not putting our guys on too much of an island behind us. It just felt like the defense was along for the ride last year. They were white knuckling it. And even though they played better than they did in 2018, it still didn't feel like they were a unit that you can rely on the same way you can rely on this defense. So I want to go, there probably wasn't a low point for this team this year. I mean, it always (laughs) felt like they could win it. A question that was a little bit different than anything we asked Greg and something, again, if we're looking for things that are new and different about this team, what would you say is the biggest difference between the Patrick Mahomes you watch right now and the Patrick Mahomes you watched even during his MVP season in 2017. It's such a cool thing to see someone this talented continue to grow, continue yeah. to ascend. And I kind of knew this was coming, right? I had obviously talked to Patrick's longtime trainer, Bobby Stroop in Texas. I had been talking to Andy Reid, you know, during a lot of the virtual OTAs and trying to get an idea of like, how is this different now? He's playing at a mental level that is only rival to Aaron Rodgers. And it's unfortunate what happened to the Packers in the last round. But I think Patrick Mahomes mentally just kind of knows everything. And so what's terrifying, Robert, is even when the Bills have the right call in the second quarter of the AFC Championship game, even when his first option is taken away and he's apparently playing on, you know, a little bit of a turf toe. And hey, he didn't get a little all bit the... of a turf toe. The guy's <laughs> Just a little ridiculous. bit of a turf toe. 
And, you know, he didn't get all the reps in practice because, you know, he had to go through the concussion protocol, which meant more time away from the iPad and more time doing these baseline tests. Like, you throw all these scenarios at him, and he figured it out on the first drive. Now, the only reason the Chiefs failed was because he threw a perfect pass and Tyreek dropped it. You know, so those variances do kind of happen. There are some randomness to it. But about when I went back and rewatched the game, it's about the sixth or seventh snap. And from that moment on, Patrick kind of knows what everybody's doing. And so even when Matt Milano becomes free, it's like, okay, well, I know if that's where you're going, and I know me and Travis Kelsey have the same sight adjustments. Oh, this is all I have to do is move here and boop. It's a little, it's a little throw. And then you throw into the idea of like, oh, McCall Hartman, you know, is not feeling good about himself because he muffed a punt. Well, we'll just have this nice end around play where Patrick doesn't have to do anything and you just gain over 50 yards. So mentally the game is easy for him because Bienemy and Andy Reid give him these plays that just allow the talent of the skill positions to to just flourish. And then on third down situations, I don't I, I I was sitting there in the third quarter just thinking like what is Leslie Frazier supposed to do? Like Robert, yeah. what is he supposed to do? It's it's maddening. I just don't understand how you can keep your sanity when you have to call yeah. defensive plays against him. It requires like a mental fortitude that I just wouldn't have. They would sell out on Kelsey, and so he'd be like, Okay, that's fine. Either there's a seven yard right now with Byron Pringle, who again is like your fourth or fifth receiving option, or That's generous. Or Tyreek Hill, and then oh, if I oh I I've seen that on a certain formation. Okay, we'll come back to that in a couple plays. And now it's an RPO, it's a slant, and here comes seventy-one yards. I mean, I because they're shading the coverage, understandably, to Travis Kelsey. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> hey, we're shading the coverage to you. We would like you to run the ball as well on this RPO action. Why are you throwing a slant to Tyreek Hill on one-on-one? Because there has to be a weakness somewhere in the defense. And he's finding it quicker and quicker now to where I was laughing in the press box during the second quarter of the Browns divisional game. This is obviously before Patrick got hurt with the concussion. But it's like, oh, the Browns aren't fast enough. They can't cover Travis Kelsey. And that's not their fault. That's just the, the, the physics of it all right now. And Mahomes makes decisions within a second and a half, and they're usually the right one. So good luck. Like, yeah, that's how it is. It it is good luck is like the exact way to frame it at this point. And you're really just kind of grabbing on and holding on for dear life. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's where we are. All right. In this game, who is the most important Chiefs player we are not thinking about? (sighs) My my knee jerk reaction is Harrison Bucker. You have to pick someone who's not a kicker. Okay. Okay. Because, hey, I'm just saying, some of these games come down to kicks, we y'all. We don't talk about <laughs> kicking on this show. Um, I, Look, I call him trick or treat. He is like, this is an old NBA reference, but look. Tony Allen, man. Of course. Come on now. I love I love the grit and grind Grizzlies. Um, The Tony Allen on this team is Daniel Sorensen. He is so. Oh, God. He is so trick-or-treat, man, because he'll make a play like he did against the Browns where, you know, was it a helmet-to-helmet hit? Yes. Did he force a fumble that resulted in a touchback? Yes. Um, Is he a bit of a over-the-top player? Of course. Will he be asked a couple times to cover Chris Godwin in the middle of the field? Or 
Rob Gronkowski? I mean, like, if you're Tom Brady, it's like, okay, who am I looking at right now? I definitely don't want to go where Tyron Matthew is. That that doesn't seem smart. Okay, Legereus Sneed's one of the best rookie quarterbacks, or cornerbacks. I, I guess I should, you know, be cautious of him, but I'll, I'll, I'll test him here or there. Um, you know, Bashad Breeland's their best outside corner. Okay, cool. Where's Scotty Miller? Where's Antonio Brown? And you got to be careful Daniel? about Scotty. Scotty will get you. And where's Daniel Sorensen? Scotty, <laughs> that's the <laughs> matchup. So if if Daniel Sorensen has a good game, there's no chance that the Buccaneers have of winning. But um, he's trick or treat. There's going to be a play in the first quarter where Daniel Sorensen is going to make some wild play, and you're just going to be like. Wow, I didn't know he had that in him. And then, you know, in the third quarter, he's going to maybe get burnt. It's just it's just who he is. He's a good dude, uh, but he is so trick-or-treat. Uh, all the respect to my old boss and good friend Bill Simmons for trick-or-treat Tony Allen. Just got to gotta shout him out there. Yes. Can't, can't say that without actually giving credit. Yeah, of course. All right, so a couple more here. Who is, and I, I think I probably know the answer to this, but who do you think is the member of the coaching staff that has not gotten enough credit or has played a larger role in this than people may seem to think. Ooh, that is a really good question. And we're not, we're not talking coordinators, right? I assume. No, you better be Probably doesn't count. Uh, we've, we talked about him so yeah. much, man. I just, I just love Greg Lewis, the, the receivers coach for the chiefs, because, you know, when I first started covering the team, you know, it it sounds cool for Andy to be like, oh, no, like, McCole Hardman's going to come in and he's going to learn the X, Y, and the Z all at the same time. And you're like, is that smart? <laughs> but they they are so interchangeable at the receiver position. And just go on any page that has the statistics of Tyreek Hill, and you can attribute that to Greg Lewis. I mean, the route running that has improved, the um, jumping at the apex – and really being a great contested receiver. Um, look, they made Sammy Watkins into a possession receiver when, you know, when he came into the draft. Is that necessarily like his his top potential? Considering he was a top four pick, I certainly hope not. But they made him into like, hey, read the zone, be available for Mahomes, play your role, don't really complain as much. I mean, Sammy Watkins, when he's available, they're, they're kind of a death star. But I think the receiving position... With the jet sweeps, with the motioning, with the changing of the positions, there are a couple times where they'll they'll be in the huddle and Pat will actually say, no, I actually want you to be the X based on what I see, and I want you to be the Y, and then I want you to go over here, but then I want you to motion back just so I can double check if it's man or not. Okay, now I know. And so all those guys know those positions. It sounds simple, but I do think Greg Lewis gets a ton of credit. He was also a former NFL receiver. Um, worked under Andy Reid with the Eagles. And I feel like um, the burden's obviously on Mahomes. And the burden is really on the offensive line because they don't chip and they just put you out there and say, all right, five guys, figure it out because we're <laughs> five out. <laughs> so, like, on the third level of the burden is is to the receivers because you're just running so much. You're running deeper routes on a more frequency than they've than most teams in, a, you know, in the NFL do. And – um, Mahomes wants to f- wants to force the football down the field, and it all makes sense, which means you got to really know where you're supposed to go at all times. Um, and I just think Greg Lewis is a is a really good coach. The more and more I've gotten to know him and understand the way he sort of helps these guys get better. My answer to that is Andy Heck. Mm. I just think that if you think about the injuries they've had oh, on that yeah, side of the ball, it's, and it's been crazy this year. 
he's the offensive line coach for people who don't know. He's been yes. there for a long time and um, people swear it's by a him. Great, it's a great pick. Yeah, people swear by him. You know, Mitchell Mitchell Schwartz, just, you know, the guy who knows the ins and outs of the position so well. And I think that he'd be able to kind of, you know, guys that know that spot and have played with really good players the way that he did in Cleveland, they could smell bullshit pretty quickly. And that when you have that level of respect from guys like him and from guys like Eric Fisher, who've been playing for such a long yeah. time and the job they've been able to do, the fact that they've been able to keep this together despite all those injuries, I think is really impressive. All right. Yes. Two more here. When you think about the 2020 Chiefs season, what is the first thing you'll think about? It actually makes me think back to the parade of ending 2019 where, you know, you go through championship parades and you're like, well, we're supposed to say something. Yeah, let's go win another one where it felt like Mahomes and Kelsey specifically and in Andy Reid. Like, when does the coach just sort of go all in and say, no, 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 let's let's like they basically created this run it back mantra campaign this running back tour um and they were daring enough to go do it and were respectable of one another and understood the salary cap situation too right i mean patrick mahomes pushes money off so that he can get chris jones under contract travis kelsey waits for george kittle to get his money and then goes a shade below it so he's not the highest paid tight end even though he could command such a such a uh, a caliber of a contract, you know, all the guys on defense understood that we want to come back and do this too. And the coaching staff realizes that, hey, at the time they thought, well, Eric, the enemy is definitely gone after this year as long as we have success. So when I think about this team, I think about being at that parade and realizing that those guys were like, that's not enough. Yeah. And now you're truly, truly trying to chase legends down, right? The 90s Cowboys, the 80s Niners, the Patriots of 2003, 2004. Because when you look up those teams, they dominated people. So they they just weren't satisfied with one, and they were willing to tell everybody, you know, at the parade, um, we're going to go really try to go get this. And I feel like some teams say it, and it sounds cool in the moment. Um, they were motivated from the jump. It's so 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 hard to win two in a row it is it, it is just but a human nature and the way the sport is and the fact that the best team doesn't always win the fact that you need these little breaks to go your way it, it's this the physical demands of the game if you don't want to squeeze everything you can out of it somebody usually wants it a little bit more yep like the fact the just the setup of it there is a reason there have only been four back-to-back champions in my 33 years of life like there is absolutely a reason, and the fact that they can be the fifth, uh, there it's not an accident. I completely understand everything that you're saying. All right, last one, very quickly. The Chiefs will win the Super Bowl, their second straight Super Bowl. If what? Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes. I, I mean, it's pretty exactly right. It's pretty simple. <laughs> like I, I hate to make it so simple, but guys, he he has only committed two turnovers in seven postseason games while they're yeah. throwing the ball at a high frequency. I mean, he's just, if Mahomes is as good as I think he is, and look, he, I, I, I don't, I know this is a bad, I know this is a bad memory, Maze, but he, he went to Chicago knowing what the, what the, what the theme of the game was. I'm going to dominate the Bears. I'm going to count to 10. I am going to let everybody know that 
maybe Mitchell Trubisky went in front of me and he shouldn't have. <laughs> I mean, last year, he did something that no quarterback had ever done, which is, oh, oh, we're down 10. Okay, cool. That's fine. I got it. I'll figure it out. Oh, it's third and 15? Yeah, I mean, whatever. I mean, there's there's going to be moments where, and one image that I can never get out of my brain is Robert Sala knowing that there's seven minutes from yeah. winning the Super You're Bowl. You're just sitting there looking at, looking at the seconds tick down. And he's just like, and then and then the, the third and 15 play happens, and he knows immediately, we are in holy trouble. Like, dark things, man. I only see dark things. Because there's only so much you can do. So, Tom Brady, all the respect, he's going to have to score 40. And that's a lot to ask. It really is. And guess what? Guess who knows who the other guy is on the sideline tomorrow on Sunday? Patrick Mahomes knows. He knows what's at stake. That guy is very aware of everything Mm -hmm. that is on the table if he wins this game. All right, buddy. Last thing I wanted to say. Uh we met 11 years ago. We were really young kids. And <laughs> I think that it's really cool 11 years later to be doing this with you and, and to and to be in this spot. And um, I'm extremely proud of you. I'm extremely happy that you get to cover this team and be along for the ride. And their success makes your work more visible because you absolutely deserve it. And uh, it's really cool to be here with you. So thank you very much for doing this. I sincerely appreciate it. Thanks, man. I've loved you since the moment we met. Man, it's it's a, too, it's a buddy. blast. We're gonna cover. We're gonna get to cover the Super Bowl together. Just, I know it's fantastic. It's I, great, I feel I, I would never really never could have imagined this. I think that when you're young and you, you want to see how your career plays out and you want to see the people you care about, you know, have good things happen for them. It doesn't always happen in this business, and the fact that it's happened for you makes me extremely happy. So I'm glad we're both here, and I appreciate you doing it. Yeah, man. Anytime. Love you, bud. All right, bud. Talk to you later. Guys, that's all we got. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back tomorrow with Lindsey Jones and a very, very special guest. I mean, we've already recorded it, but I'm excited for you guys to listen. I want it to be a little bit of a surprise. Please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It would be a big help to me. It would be doing me a favor. Also, please subscribe to The Athletic. Nate and Greg are doing amazing work this week. I've got some stuff coming later in the week that I'm really excited about. It's still $3.99 a month. It's a great deal. Theathletic.com slash football show. You're going to want to check out the stuff we have on the site before this game. We'll be back tomorrow, and we'll be back the rest of the week. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you later. This was The Athletic Football Show. Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app.